0: Good morning. When the need for someone to teach this morning became evident, Dave went to the elders and said, I have a friend who needs practice in teaching. And we would serve the body of Christ by giving him an opportunity to get some experience. I'm glad for this opportunity. Dr. Boatman called me after it was known that uh, I would be here. He had been my dentist. And he said, I've never heard you teach or preach. And my response was to say to him what he says to his patients. This won't hurt much. (laughs) I'm directing your attention this morning to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This would be based upon what our Lord taught the disciples in the upper room on the eve of his crucifixion. That after his resurrection and ascension, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit would come to indwell individual believers as well as the corporate body of believers. So Paul's doctrine was based on the teaching that came from the lips of our Lord himself, a temple. The temple that Herod was building at that time, had been in construction, you remember from the gospel story, more than forty-six years. Herod's desire was to ingratiate himself to the Jewish people, for he was not a Jew. And the animosity to an outsider was so great that Herod felt he might ingratiate himself if he took that temple that had been built. Some 500 years before, after the restoration from the Babylonian captivity, and expand it, enlarge it, and make it into a permanent building. The Jews objected, because the work would be done by a Gentile, and therefore, the building they erected would be unclean and unsuitable for use. And so he took some hundreds of priests and school them to be masons and stone cutters and carpenters so that the building would be erected by Jewish hands and that temple was more than 30 years from its completion magnificent building and when Herod built his goal was to build Buildings that would outlast the pyramids. And when you take your trip to Israel, you will find buildings in use there today that Herod constructed more than 2,000 years ago. Master builder. But what was known among the Jews as the second temple had taken the place of Zerubbabel's temple. It was erected after the Babylonian captivity. But that had taken the place of that magnificent temple that Solomon had built. Perhaps the most spectacular building in the history of construction. A building overlaid with gold on the exterior. So that the queen of Sheba came and after she had seen The work of Solomon's hands said the half can't even be imagined. But that temple had taken the place of the tabernacle, which as you know from the record given in the book of Exodus, was a simple building made out of wood and linen curtains and animal skins. It was a simple tent. But it had a specific purpose. And it's that that I want to emphasize this morning, to cast light on what Paul teaches the Corinthians. And I want you to go with me back into Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25. For after God gave Moses instruction concerning the tabernacle, God said this, verse 22, I will meet with thee. I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. I will meet with thee. Or again, In Exodus 29, and at the end of verse 42, I will meet you to speak with you, and there I will meet with the children of Israel. And verse 46, they shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now here's an amazing statement that the omnipotent, omniscient, eternal God was seeking fellowship with his creatures. The tabernacle was designed to be a meeting place between God and that people whom he had redeemed from bondage in Egypt whom he would bring into the promised land. But see, this is an outworking of what God revealed in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. When before this earth was remodeled to be a place for human habitation, God the Father God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had conferred together and God said, Let us make man in our image. God is not impersonal, is not an impersonal force. Our God is a person. And he possessed all of the characteristics and qualifications and attributes that made him a person. He had a mind. And it was infinite so that he was omniscient. He had... Emotional capacity or a heart so that he could love with infinite love. He was absolute sovereign and could exercise his will, carry out his plans and his purposes. And when God said, let us make man in our image. The Godhead was saying, let us endue man with the capacities that characterize us. Not first that they can enter into fellowship with us, but that we can enter into fellowship with them. It was God's desire to make himself known. And then, as man would exercise the capacities that God had given to him, and would come to know God, And would respond in love to the God he came to know. And would subject himself to the will of the God whom he knew and loved. They could have intimate fellowship together. God with man. And man with God. We haven't read far in Genesis before we read that it was God's custom, God's habit, to come and walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. Why? He was fulfilling his own desire for fellowship. For fellowship. Now, this was not because there was some deficit in God. It was not to fill up an empty void. But it arose out of a desire that those whom he knew and loved would know and love him. God gave Adam work to do. Adam, I want you to name all the animals. Why that? Well, we learned that God was revealing himself through nature. That's why the psalmist would say, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. This was universal revelation of God's power and God's existence that brought all creation into subjection to God. And if I can let my imagination run wild, forgive me, does that every once in a while, as David will tell you. God must have appeared in the evening and said to Adam, What did you learn about me today? Where would he have learned anything about God? By studying that part of creation that he had a responsibility to give a name to. And as he studied creation, he came to know the creator more and more about him. And while God said, name the animals... I think he must have also added, when you walk among the roses and the daisies, give them a name, study them to see what they tell you about me. So that revelation came, or that knowledge of God came through divine revelation. Adam was not left on his own to discover God. God initiated a process by which Adam would come to know him. You know how that ended? With the rebellion of both Adam and Eve against the person who is revealing himself to them. God's desire to to reveal himself and to be known was not eclipsed because of the fall. And when God redeemed a people from bondage in Egypt, he declared to them, I'm going to cause you to build what will become an object lesson. Build that which will reveal me to you. And as we read it in Exodus 25, the purpose of building the tabernacle was that God might enter into fellowship with his people. And that through that tabernacle they might come to know him. Exodus 25 said, I will speak with you there. Now I've searched the scriptures and I've never found any reference to God ever speaking audibly from the tabernacle. When he wanted to speak to Elijah, what did he do? took him out in the wilderness, spoke to him in a still, small voice. When he wanted to speak to David, how did he do it? Well, Psalm 19 spoke to him. David was out tending sheep. And what David discovered, following sheep, reveals something about God to him. And so we read those magnificent psalms that exalt the glory of God. But God had said, I will speak with you there. And what I'm suggesting is that by design, everything that went into the tabernacle And everything that went into all of the rituals carried on in the tabernacle. And everything that went on in the feasts, God ordained. The centered in the tabernacle, God was speaking. What was one of the first things that those Israelites would have learned that there was a veil and that the veil separated them from the very presence of God. It's so striking when you get into Exodus 40 and in verse 33, at the conclusion of the erection of the tabernacle and the setting up of all the articles of furniture, Moses finished the work. Verse 34, a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode therein and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, whenever we find God revealing himself, God is pictured as clothed in light. A light so dazzling that it would would consume any who came into God's presence without a protective veil. And the veil was not so much designed To keep Israel out of the presence of God as it was to make it possible for God to dwell in the midst of the people whom he loved and redeemed without consuming him by the brightness of his glory. And while week after week and month after month and year after year the descendants of Abraham gathered around the tabernacle, there was that veil that stood before them. Of course, Scripture makes it very clear that it was sin that erected the veil between the one who wanted to reveal himself and those to whom he desired to reveal himself. But then, notice the object lesson. How could one who is separated from God by sin, ever come into his presence. And you begin at the burnt altar. There must be a sacrifice of an innocent substitute in place of the guilty. And that makes approach to God possible. Then you went from the altar to the laver the one for whom blood has been shed and a debt has been paid by death, there is cleansing. And such a one then has access to the table of showbread, fellowship with God. And he becomes that golden lampstand, a light to share the knowledge of the glory of God to those who are in darkness. And as they work their way through that object lesson, God was speaking to them, not audibly, but visually. A number of years, well, back when I was in student days, the uh, the Orthodox synagogue of Dallas that was then located in South Dallas was giving publicity to their observance of the Feast of Tabernacles. And some of us in the student body felt it might be uh, edifying if we went to observe their observance. So we called the rabbi and asked if we Gentiles would uh, be welcome the rabbi was quite excited at the prospect. And he said, I have just one request, Uh, wear hats. And every gentleman wore hats in those days, so that was no problem. And we all went with our Hebrew Bibles. That was essentially pointless, because in the service, The rabbis and the cantors were going through Hebrew scriptures so fast, we couldn't turn from place to place fast enough and didn't have any idea what was going on. And then they came to the observance of the Feast of Tabernacles in an outdoor booth. They had put up a temporary structure, had branches of trees and vines growing over the top. It was open on the sides, and there was a very long table set up under that booth. And on that table, there were different bundles of herbs, and, uh, uh, there were honeycombs, and, uh, uh, there were fruits and nuts, and, uh, uh, delicious looking baked cakes. And we had thought that, uh, we would stand as far on the outside of the circle as possible so as not to be observed. But those men, and only only men, went into that observance. Uh, They pushed us right up so we were standing at the tables. And the rabbi got up and he said, uh, we have some goy, Hebrew for Gentiles in our midst, and I want to explain to them the significance. And so he took bundles of those herbs and said, This was Israel's experience in the wilderness. And then he took a comb of honey and uh, took fruits. And he said this would be Israel's experience when they came into the promised land. And he went on and explained each thing on the table. It wasn't difficult for us to understand. But what was surprising is that when that was over, the men crowded upon us and thanked us for being there because they said, in all of our experience, we never had this explained before. Now, now I see that is the function of the sacrifices, the feasts, the articles of furniture, the priest, if he had done his work, would have explained on every occasion the significance of it and told what that particular part of their observances revealed about God. I think that was the function of the tabernacle to make God known. I will meet with you I will speak with you, and they shall know me. Three things. They're in Exodus 29, 42 to 46. I will meet with them, speak with them. And it wouldn't have been audible, but it was visual. They would have learned. Then I turn into John chapter 1. And we're introduced to a person who is called the Word. The Word. Israel, because of their sin, because of their lawlessness, because of their rebellion, was carried captive into Babylon. The northern neighbors, because of sin, had fallen captive to Assyria before Jerusalem fell. While Judah was in Babylon, they lost knowledge of the scriptures did not observe the feasts, the sacrifices. And therefore, when they returned from Babylonian captivity, they returned in ignorance. And that's why when Ezra discovered the scriptures, it says he studied them, he read them, he explained them, He applied them so it was necessary for a nation to learn again what had been revealed to them, but which had been eclipsed from their minds. And God sent a new revealer. The Word. Now, this is quite significant. Uh, Concede something for illustrative purposes for a moment. Concede, I have a thought in my mind. Okay? I'm concentrating on it. I'm staring you in the eye. I'm thinking, staring at you. What am I thinking? Hmm? I have no idea. Why? I can't convey anything from my mind to your mind by a glance. How can I do it? If I can select a word that summarizes my thought and let that word adequately represent what I'm thinking, and I say to you, I'm thinking of lunch with the deans (laughs) after this service is over, what happens? By that one word, lunch, I have conveyed something from my mind to your mind. So a word is a means of communication, a word of revelation. Now what did Israel had throughout their history? The revelation of God through nature and had become blind to it. They had the revelation of God through the tabernacle. And they'd become blind to it. And so I read in John one fourteen, the Word became flesh, and literally, tabernacled among us. I like that translation. The word Jesus Christ, tabernacled among us. Now, what does it say? That He came. Visually, to do what the tabernacle was designed to have done for Israel in the past. You with me? Okay. The question is, how did he do it? And I remember in John 14, one of his own came to him and said uh, show us the father it'll satisfy us i have been teaching more years than any of you as far as i can tell by a glance have lived but as a teacher i can sort of sense what jesus must how Jesus must have responded when Philip said, Show us the Father. <sighs> Philip, what do you think I have been doing from the day I called you into fellowship with myself? Did you miss it? That everything I said did not come from me, it came from my Father. And everything I did, I didn't do it, but it was the Father who was doing it. So that my words and my works were the means by which the Father was making Himself known to you. I find the same thing in John 8. In verses 28, the religious leaders, the Pharisees came to him and they knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. And they challenged him. And said, how can we know that you are God? And he said, my works are the Father's works. My words are the Father's words. So I am the new tabernacle through which God is doing for this generation what he did for Israel when Moses erected the old tabernacle. He's revealing himself. I think in John one eighteen, No man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared or introduced him to you. If I were to ask you, why did Jesus Christ come? I'm sure you'd quote scripture. And you would say, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. You'd be perfectly right. When was that work completed? Tell me. When was the work of salvation accomplished? On the cross. We're not saved by the life of Christ. We're saved by the death of Christ. Because the penalty for sin was not live a good life and you'll triumph. Now the penalty for sin was death. So that that work that Christ said he had come to do was accomplished in those hours on the cross. What's Christ doing in the years of his earthly ministry? John one eighteen. He's not introducing men to God. He's introducing God to man and doing it by his words and by his work. If one viewed the tabernacle, he had to make a transfer from the physical to the spiritual. When he listens to Jesus and watches what Jesus did, he's not transferring from the literal to the spiritual, but he is having a full revelation of the spiritual who the Father is. And that's why God said to the Samaritan woman that God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the fullest revelation that we have of the Father was anticipated through the tabernacle but was fully revealed through his Son. And then the time came when the word was taken up in glory. The revelation was inscripturated. So we study the scriptures that through the Son we might come to know the Father. You'll never know more of the Father than you know of the Son. And you'll never know more of the Son then you know of the word. And so that revelation continues. But the world at the time of Christ's ascension was in darkness. And I'm so touched by what Jesus said on the eve of his crucifixion As recorded in John 17, we refer to this as Christ's prayer, high priestly prayer. Jesus can say in verse 4, I have glorified thee on earth. Now to glorify is to make known, to reveal, take away blindness. Disclose the person. Jesus gives that explanation in uh, John 17:6. I have manifested thy name unto the man whom thou gave me. That is to the twelve. I've made you known, I've glorified you. And then he moves from himself as the instrument to reveal God to those men themselves. And in verse 18, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Now allow allow me to paraphrase that. For the same reason... You sent me into the world. I now am turning around and sending them into the world. To do what I've been doing. What does that mean? That's my background in uh, approaching what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. You have become the temple, the tabernacle. What was the purpose of the tabernacle? To meet with God. God could meet with us. To hear God speak. So that men who hear what we say, see what we do, might come to know God. You're God's present day tabernacle. How do you do it? You can't improve on the way Jesus did it. If he revealed the Father by both his words and his works, that sets the pattern. For what God is trying to do through His new tabernacle. Make Himself known. We pointed out that God sought fellowship not because of some deficiency in Himself. but because of our need to respond to him. Can I put it this way? What husband here is there who does not want to spend time with his wife? He may want to say thank you for what you have contributed to me as a person since we became one flesh. Express appreciation for the way she keeps the house, provides meals day after day. Share the joy that has come as she has provided you with sons and daughters that have so enriched your life. You are driven to express thanksgiving praise. So that when God reveals himself to us, it is not To fill up some inadequacy by which we can say, I worship you. But rather, that we can respond to him as a person. And satisfy our own need to worship. It isn't that God needs to be worshipped. As though he'd be deficient without it but God has given us an opportunity to satisfy our deepest need. That is to offer him the sacrifice of praise, even the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. It is my conviction that worship never begins on the lips of an individual or even from the emotions of an individual true worship will be the instantaneous automatic response to the revelation that god gives of himself and when we see him as he is and get a little comprehension of his love that is provided so richly for us we need to express our worship, our praise, our adoration. That's the way I'm viewing and interpreting Paul's statement of the Corinthians. You are tabernacles. God wants to do through you what he did for Israel. To make himself known to teach you, and then that you might be satisfied with what you know about him. See, what this means is that we are all teachers of theology, every one of us who know him. we are living our concept of God. Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me and the life which I live in the flesh. I live not by myself, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is the life of Christ Reproduced in the child of God by the power of the Holy Spirit so that through Christ reproducing himself in us and through us, those who watch us might have a true comprehension of who and what God is. So I would ask... Husbands, if one were to ask your wife, what is your comprehension of God from what you see in your husband? What would her answer be? Children, if you were to explain your concept of God by what you see going on in the lives of your parents? What would their concept of God be? That businessman who offices next to you, if you would ask him, what is your concept of God by what you see in your neighbor who works next door? What was the concept? God is using you to reveal himself. A transformed life like that is such a faithful manifestation, declaration, revelation who God is. If one is moved to donate a kidney to one in need that is not manifestation of a human emotion that's the love of god manifesting itself through the sacrifice of the donor The response, as the world observed that, they placarded that in the front pages of the religious section of Dallas Morning News. Why? Because it's obviously not natural. It's God-loving. God showing his love to the one who needed the donation, but showing his love through the donor. Now, God has never asked me to donate a kidney, but I have the responsibility of recognizing the need in someone else and responding as God enables me to respond. the day of Pentecost, thousands came to faith in Christ as the Messiah in Jerusalem. And then that chapter records that that work of the coming of the Spirit so changed people's lives that those who possessed houses or lands or material things were selling them turning them over to the apostles so the apostles could distribute to those in need. And when Jerusalem saw that evidence of the love of God at work in his children, it brought thousands to him, moved by that manifestation of the love of God. And if you consider such funds as you have and you distribute them and make arrangements to make sure you get income tax deduction, I would be so bold to say that's not the love of God. But if you do that anonymously, that God might get to the glory, then you're fulfilling the command of pride and the pra- answering the prayer of Christ. I've glorified Him. Now I'm leaving. Now I'm giving you the responsibility of living out my life so that others will not glorify you for generosity As you see His love at work in you, what kind of doctrine about God are you teaching day by day? Father, may the Spirit of God cast His own light. And your word. Bring conviction. Reproof. Rebuke is necessary. So that we might be tabernacles. Where you meet with us. We meet with you. You speak to us and teach us. And then make yourself known.